This morning, the Equality and Human Rights Commission published their final report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Labour Party leader Keir Starmer, October 2020. I found this report hard to read, and it is a day of shame for the Labour Party. The Labour Party I lead accepts this report in full and without qualification. This report marks the end of a scandal that engulfed the final years of his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. Less than six months prior, the scandal helps cost Corbyn his job as leader. And less than six hours after the release of the report, it costs him his career in the party. How did you feel when you heard you'd been suspended from the party? Very shocked and very disappointed. I've been in the Labour Party all my life. Ultimately, The final straw is not necessarily what's in the report, but rather Corbyn's attempt to push back on the findings. There are still those who think there's no problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, that it's all exaggerated or a factional attack. Then, frankly, you are part of the problem too. And you should be nowhere near the Labour Party either. But that's not what Corbyn says exactly. He didn't say he thinks there's no problem with anti-Semitism. What he says in a statement is this. The scale of Labour's anti-Semitism problem has been dramatically overstated for political reasons. So it's probably worth asking, was it? This is Al Jazeera Investigates. I'm Kevin Hurton. Welcome to The Labour Files, Episode 2, The Shock. Al Jazeera's investigative unit has obtained the entirety of the Labour Party's disciplinary files since before Corbyn became leader. It's the biggest leak of documents in the history of British politics, and it's providing a remarkable new understanding of the circumstances that led to Corbyn's downfall. In episode one, we talked about the factional war that has consumed the party. On one side, the Labour right, sometimes called Blairites, which controlled the party apparatus in London. On the other side is the Labour left, Corbynites, who at the time made up most of the grassroots. Those are party members, local councillors, etc. What's now painfully clear is that right from the start of Corbyn's time in power, an unelected right-wing faction at the highest levels of power in the party chose to ignore multiple democratic mandates and took extreme action to undermine Corbyn at every turn. This is a really fundamental point to understand. That's my colleague, Richard Sanders. When Jeremy Corbyn takes over in September 2015, he inherits a general secretary and a Labour Party bureaucracy from previous leaders. Richard has been a journalist and filmmaker in the UK for more than 30 years and has been investigating this issue for months. The party bureaucracy really was still in place from the Blair era. It was positively right-wing in in Labour Party terms. And we now know viciously hostile to him. That hostility was palpable for members of Corbyn's team, like communications chief James Schneider. I remember the first time I went and walked around HQ and we were just walking around one of the floors and it just goes deathly silent. I've never worked in an environment that was so toxic and unfriendly. It's really very weird. Peter Oborn. He was the chief political commentator for the Daily Telegraph until he quit in 2015. 
he doesn't hold back when describing how the party felt about its new leader. They really hate Corbyn. The party itself, the party machinery, was remorselessly opposed to him and set on undermining him. At first, it makes no difference. The party members are with him, and Corbyn easily survives a leadership challenge in 2016. I'm therefore conference delighted to declare Jeremy Colburn elected as leader of the Labour Party. And in the 2017 general election, he surprises everyone, coming from 25 points down in the polls and nearly defeats incumbent Prime Minister Theresa May. Political earthquake newspaper headlines capture how Prime Minister Theresa May's gamble on early elections backfired. Her Conservative Party lost its overall majority. 2017 is an extraordinary general election. The British public, when they actually get to see Corbyn, the Labour Party just goes up vertically. It is quite astonishing. Corbyn had campaigned ferociously on his core beliefs, like anti-austerity and the public ownership of services. It struck a nerve with voters and then some. They are even chanting his name at the world-famous Glastonbury Music Festival. When it is all said and done, even his critics have to credit his performance on the hustings. My word, once he'd hit the campaign trail, he was transformed uh, into something completely different. I mean, he had a sort of character explosion. That's Lord Peter Mandelson, one of the architects of New Labour and one of former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair's right-hand men. He's echoing the astonishment felt by an entire political class who never saw Corbyn coming. Here you had someone who was the epitome of the sort of unelectable left. Corbyn's many, many opponents within the Labour Party had assumed the election would be a disaster and then they'd get rid of him. Yeah. And to their absolute astonishment, he almost won. Not and it, just astonishment, horror, right? Because this is when they start freaking out. This is when it becomes real. We can see the reaction of the senior officials within Labour HQ because they're texting each other. And I think the most striking comment is from Tracy Allen, who is the office manager of Ian McNichol, the general secretary. So the office manager of the highest ranking bureaucrat in the Labour Party sends this WhatsApp. Yeah, hold on. Let me get it. They are cheering and we are silent and grey faced, opposite to what I had been working towards for the last couple of years. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Double slammer on that. With everyone now reassessing Corbyn's abilities, Sky News reporter Jason Farrell thankfully follows up with Lord Mandelson. You've also said each day I try and think of ways to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. I did say that, yes. Well, that was a mistake, wasn't it? Well, no, uh, I wasn't alone amongst people uh, who found his performance disappointing. If he'd had your backing, he might have done a lot better. Well, he might have done. What we now know from the Labour files and other sources is that Corbyn's other opponents in the party were undermining him financially as well. In the lead-up to the election, party officials diverted funds, funds donated by unions and members, away from pro-Corbyn candidates in potentially winnable seats and into labor-right candidates in safe seats. And they were doing it all in secret, all under the assumption that Corbyn would lose big. It's the largest increase of the vote since 1945. It's a huge thing. So we're on our high and we start winning seats you haven't heard of. Corbyn's communications chief, James Schneider. They're WhatsApping with each other in the room next door about how they're upset. If you walk around the building to other parts, there was a sullen mood in some places. 
they are clearly not deriving any pleasure at all from the fact that the Labour Party has done so well. And you can see it throughout the campaign. There is this extraordinary upsurge of enthusiasm. Our membership triples, I think. They're bewildered by the size of the crowds Corbyn is drawing. They say things like, who are these people? <laughs> you know? It doesn't seem like they're trying to win the argument here. You're absolutely right that there is an absence here of any desire to do that through sort of debate and argument. It's all fundamentally undemocratic. There's an immediate recourse to their access to the bureaucracy and to the machine and to use that to get rid of people and to suppress different voices. You have all these new people, like young people coming to CLP meetings, joining branches. You'd think a functioning party would be able to harness this energy and instead they're just getting rid of them. This dynamic is nothing new, by the way. As an American, I recognize it immediately. This just into CNN, Russian hackers managed to infiltrate the computer network at the Democratic National Committee. Many people forget that the Trump-Russiagate scandal starts with a hack of Democratic Party emails in 2016. What they actually revealed was very interesting, that the party bureaucracy was entirely working for Hillary and against Bernie. The difference is, Bernie Sanders never becomes a leader of his party, and certainly never comes a few thousand votes from becoming the leader of his country. Corbyn does, but already his days are limited. It's amazing when you look at what happened in 2017, that the success that he had, that in two years he would be suspended from his own party and disgraced. There were an enormous array of vested interests that really wanted to destroy Corbyn, including the bureaucracy of his own party and a large part of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And uh, they basically alighted on anti-Semitism as the perfect weapon. And they were right, it was the perfect weapon. Okay, so the anti-Semitism scandal. Richard, this is an issue that comes to define Corbyn's legacy. It grows into an all-consuming scandal, but it starts out pretty small. The anti-Semitism thing is bubbling away from the spring of 2016 onwards. It doesn't really gain that much traction. It doesn't really start to sort of dominate the news headlines and so on until the spring of 2018. Uh, There's a demonstration in Parliament Square. Every racist, anti-Semout, out of the Labour Party... It's time for Jeremy Corbyn to There had been a number of stories leading up to this protest. Comments by the former mayor of London, Ken Livingston, prompts an inquiry into anti-Semitism called the Chakrabarty Report. The report has a whole series of recommendations to address this issue of anti-Semitism in the party. The Chakrabarty Report is a very good document if anybody reads it. James Schneider. Jeremy Corbyn's communications chief. Its recommendations, I think, slow walks would be the best way to put it. They don't follow up on the recommendations of the Chakrabarti report. The Labour Party bureaucracy simply doesn't implement it, to the enormous frustration of the Labour Party leadership. So the complaints procedures are controlled by the party machinery, so that's within HQ. It's not the domain of the leadership. I think it's really important for people to understand, and it is, it seems counterintuitive. You think a leader is elected, therefore he runs the party. 
But that's not actually how it works. They're the political leadership. Then there's the bureaucracy. In March of 2018, protesters gather outside parliament. They are calling on the Labour Party to do more to address anti-Semitism. The demonstration is called Enough is Enough. Okay, Richard, who is at this protest? I mean, it varies. I mean, you have uh, Jewish MPs like Luciana Berger and Ruth Smith and Margaret Hodge. The most public part of it is driven by people from the political center who, on issues other than Israel, have progressive politics. Luciana Berger, who is Jewish herself, is very outspoken about the party's handling of the anti-Semitism issue. She will famously resign from the party a year later. I cannot remain in a party that I have today come to the sickening conclusion is institutionally anti-Semitic. The Enough is Enough demo, that's comparatively large and and full of serving MPs and ex-MPs and so on. Among them, you do have these activists who are really the driving energy, which is small groups who have been active in pro-Israeli circles for a number of years. I'm thinking here particularly of two men, Richard Millett and Jonathan Hoffman. Richard Millett and Jonathan Hoffman are well known to anybody who is anyway an activist for Palestine in London. Paul Scott is an activist himself, and he's been around for a long time. So over the last 20 years, I've attended probably hundreds of different events. You get to know all the faces. It's actually only a very small core of people. There was a shop in the West End of London which used to sell goods from Israeli settlements. Pro-Palestinian activists used to demonstrate there. Jonathan Hoffman used to organize demonstrations against this. And there was a period where the English Defence League used to turn up and they would demonstrate side by side. The English Defence League is also known as EDL. But the EDL became synonymous with racism and Islamophobia. Its members connected to hate crimes and mosque bombings. This is Tommy Robinson's group. There is no such thing in this country as a Muslim enemy. An explicitly racist organization. From around June 2010, the English Defence League started coming to the demonstrations supporting the pro-Israel counter-demonstrators. So they were dressed in camouflage gear. They often had balaclavas, dogs with them, St. George's flags, you know, the whole thing. Both Millet and Hoffman severed all ties with the EDL in 2011. But the two of them are still well-known to activists like Paul Scott. They are always there. They have shadowed the pro-Palestinian solidarity movement for years. They come to all the events, the lectures, the demonstrations. They characterize anybody who criticizes Israel as being anti-Semitic and scum and terrorist supporters. They heckle, they provoke, they disrupt. This is Millet being barred from an Amnesty International event in 2017. Richard Millet wrote a blog which he very carefully moderated, but which nevertheless provided a platform for, again, figures from the English Defence League. You know, very, very extreme figures. I think the vast majority of people who were active against Corbyn would be profoundly embarrassed by the the links people like Hoffman 
and Millet had some of them may be ignorant of them, but there did seem to be a preparedness to sort of turn a blind eye, definitely. If you listen to the speeches at Enough is Enough, the chief complaint is that the party isn't moving fast enough to address anti-Semitism complaints. Being a bystander who turns their head the other way is not an option. The time for action is now. According to the Labor Files, there's a very high-profile figure in the party who shares their frustration. And that figure is Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn is every bit as frustrated as the demonstrators. He has no control over the complaints process. In fact, he has no control over Party HQ. It's run by people who are ferociously hostile to him. And he also feels that they're proving extremely ineffectual in tackling anti-Semitism. Now, he writes on the 21st of February 2018 to Ian McNichol, the General Secretary. The key concern is the fact that the Chakrabarti report has still not been fully implemented. It is clear that the current processes are far too slow. Now, Ian McNichol, the General Secretary, who would later be one of Corbyn's fiercest critics on anti-Semitism, drafts his reply. Over half of the complaints made relate to non-members and therefore are not a matter for the complaints team. He urged Corbyn that misguided comments attacking the unit undermine the work they do and serve only those in the right-wing press. This is a big deal. The Labour files reveal that at this moment when the whole thing is gathering steam within the party, the senior figure who's frustrated and saying, why aren't we doing more, is Jeremy Corbyn. The person who's pushing back and saying, well, we're doing our best, is General Secretary Ian McNichol. British opposition Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn is accused of not tackling anti-Semitism in the party. In the month following the protest, the scandal picks up steam. Corbyn's apologised for his support of the creative and anti-Semitic mural, but Britain's Jewish community isn't satisfied. Richard Millett and Jonathan Hoffman are driving some of the coverage, keeping the scandal alive. Millett's blog digs up a 2013 speech where Corbyn called out two audience members who had berated a senior Palestinian official, saying, Having lived in this country for a very long time, probably all their lives, they don't understand English irony either. Now this caused an absolute furore. This was taken as being anti-Semitic. Hoffman, for his part, organizes one of the more memorable images of the period. Three billboard trucks parked outside of the Houses of Parliament, emblazoned with slogans like failure to act on anti-Semitism and Holocaust deniers harbored. Hoffman is also an advisor to an organization called Labor Against Antisemitism. Labor Against Antisemitism is a sort of collective of people. They're responsible for 12% of uh, all complaints in the Corbyn era. One of the things that we can see in the disciplinary folders is that the whole thing is driven by very small numbers of complainants, quite obsessive complainants. There's one individual who is a complainant in 23% of all anti-Semitism cases in the Corbyn era. We came across a slightly humorous email in the Labour Files. Fair warning, it's not really ha-ha funny. More facepalm funny. It's from one of the leading figures of Labor Against Anti-Semitism, a guy called Ewan Phillips. His organization is making allegations against people who are Jewish, 
and some of them are, like him, not Jewish themselves. It would seem that they are starting to feel a little bit sensitive about this. So he invents a sort of alter ego called David Gordstein, which he clearly um, sees as being a, a Jewish-sounding surname, and starts sending in complaints under the name David Gordstein. And he's caught out because by mistake he signs it Ewan. Oh, right. He says, thanks a lot, Ewan. And then he writes back and says, sorry, I meant thanks, David. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All the controversy is having an impact, and the party starts aggressively investigating anti-Semitism among its members. The I-Unit has access to the entirety of the Labor Party disciplinary files for these years. It's interesting reading, especially during this period in 2018. One has to understand that this was a social media crisis. That's Andrew Feinstein, a man with one of the more remarkable CVs you'll ever come across. In addition to being a Labour Party member, he's also a well-known public figure in his native South Africa. I'm a former ANC member of parliament. I served under Nelson Mandela for his only term of office. I am also Jewish. My mother was a Holocaust survivor who lost dozens of her own family, primarily in Auschwitz and Theresienstadt. Andrew has lectured worldwide, including at Auschwitz, on genocide prevention and the role of the global arms trade he's had a chance to review the disciplinary cases in the labor files. An analysis of 278 cases from 2018 shows that 91% of those cases depended entirely on social media posts. It was about trawling through tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions even, of social media posts to find things that could be interpreted as anti-Semitism. And some of what they find is genuinely horrific. There are some examples of very straightforward, uncomplicated, clear anti-Semitism. Here is an example that says, the enemy is not Muslims or Christians or Judaism. The real enemy is Rothschild Zionism. It gets even worse, an image from social media with the word obey in large letters, and how Jews control the American media. And you can understand why people were upset by it. But then there is also a lot of information in these disciplinary files where there is clearly no anti-Semitism whatsoever. Often, the evidence is nothing more than a picture someone likes or shares on social media. For example, at the time, there was a viral picture going around of four young boys who were killed by Israeli naval-grade shells while playing football on a beach in Gaza. The title reads, In Memory of Four Little Footballers, Rest in Peace. There is nothing at all that I would regard as anti-Semitic in this post. It's cherishing the memory of, of these four young kids. This picture was the only evidence against this particular member who resigned from the party in disgust when she received her letter of investigation. What you have is an enormous quantity of resources and time dedicated to scouring and trawling the entirety of the social media output and other output of its members to find anything at all that could in any way be interpreted as anti-Semitism. It is crucially important to put this anti-Semitism crisis in context. 
because the reality is that the total number of people formally investigated for anti-Semitism during the Corbyn period in the Labour Party amounted to just 0.1% of the party membership. 0.1%. Now set that against the fact that polls show almost 50% of Conservative Party members believe Islam to be a threat to the British way of life. And I think it's clear that something very strange happens in the British media political landscape in these years. If you are an average British media consumer at this time, there are two groups you would largely not be hearing from. Those are Palestinians and left-wing Jews. Jewish Voice for Labour is maligned within the British press as this is the unacceptable face of Corbyn's Labour, sort of left-wing thugs and extremists. You go and meet them and they're all little old Jewish ladies. (laughs) We established Jewish Voice for Labour in this house. This is Jenny Manson. I'm co-chair. I was actually the original chair when we set up in 2017. Jenny Manson certainly doesn't come across as a thug, or even really all that left-wing for that matter. I'd never been particularly on the left of the party. I was used to be known as the soft left locally. She's also extremely proud of family heritage. Oh, very briefly, I'm Jewish. My mother escaped a pogrom in Zhitomir, a little town outside Kiev, in 1919, went to Palestine and came to England about 10 years later. She says she grew tired of seeing the same people on TV talking about the scandal, claiming to speak for all Jews. I remember writing to the BBC a few times saying, you keep on getting these Jewish spokesmen saying that as Jews they feel terribly unsafe in the party and how anti-Semitic it is. These are not representative. There's lots of Jews like me who don't consider this to be true. I've seen almost no anti-Semitism. So I was coming to it from a position as a, a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn's policies, but also as somebody extraordinarily shocked by the misuse of anti-Semitism allegations. And so the Institute of Jewish Policy Research did some work and found that most anti-Semitism was on the far right. There was anti-Israel views on the far left. This debate between what is and what is not considered anti-Semitic comes to a head by the summer of 2018. Corbyn's critics are pushing the party to adopt a new internationally recognized definition of anti-Semitism compiled by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA, which on its face seems like a good idea. If you're going to have a debate, it's best to define your terms. However, there's a very basic problem, which is a definition that Palestinians fundamentally disagree with. The new definition has a set of examples attached, examples of things that should be considered anti-Semitic. The majority of the examples are about how one talks about Israel. My colleague Richard Sanders again. You have the rise of a whole thing called the new anti-Semitism, which essentially does, you know, quite consciously equate criticism of Israel. The idea being that because Israel is the world's only Jewish state, to criticize Israel in in any sort of fundamental way is in itself to be anti-Semitic. Now, in a way, the IHRA definition is seen by many as embodying this new concept of the new anti-Semitism. 
Andrew Feinstein, who, remember, has lectured at and had relatives killed at Auschwitz, has studied this issue very closely. These are the 11 illustrative examples of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Seven of them refer to Israel. It conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. The seventh one, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, for instance, by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor, is particularly problematic because by acknowledging the right to self-determination of the Jewish people, you are, by definition, removing the right of self-determination from the Palestinian people. The seventh clause, which is astonishing. Radha Kami is a Palestinian writer whose family was driven from their homes in 1948 in Jerusalem. By definition, a Jewish state is one with a majority of Jews, that is, a people uh, definably of one group uh, to the exclusion of others. That's called racism. I mean, what else is it? This is exemplified in my own story. I mean, why should I and my family have left our homes? We only left because of the violence. No Palestinian I know has been allowed to return for the same racist reason. They are of the wrong race. What Clause 7 is essentially doing is denying them the right to articulate what has been the central experience of their people over the last century. People who are more supportive of Israel would dispute that. The problem with this is it's saying you're not even allowed to articulate that point of view. Or to debate it. To debate it, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to say to Rada, I disagree with you. Right. That's, you know, that's fine, and she's happy to put, for people to disagree with her. The great problem of this definition is saying you're not even allowed to articulate that. Right. In September 2018, the Labour Party National Executive Committee overwhelmingly approves the new definition. It's not even close. We asked James Schneider, who is Corbyn's head of communications, why they adopt the new definition. His answer is remarkably frank. We adopted the IHRA definition and examples because it was the key demand of the Jewish communal organizations, and it was politically impossible to hold up. Day after day on the media, there are Jewish voices who want the IHRA definition. The counter-pressure from Palestinian voices in the media and so on was absent, in part because voices for Palestine, either Palestinians themselves or their supporters, are quite marginal in British public life. One group that is not being marginalized at this period is the Jewish labor movement. This group is like the polar opposite of Jenny Manson's Jewish Voice for Labor. And this group, Jewish Labor Movement, will play a significant role in a massively influential BBC documentary that pretty well cements the narrative that the Labor Party is irredeemably and irreparably anti-Semitic. That's next time on The Labor Files. Plus, as a Jew... As the son of a Holocaust survivor, to be accused of anti-Semitism is frankly terrifying. 
why Jewish members of the Labour Party are so much more likely to be investigated for anti-Semitism. The Labour Party declined to comment on any of the individual cases covered in this podcast. It said that it was a rules-based organization that followed its rules. It also referred us to its 2020 action plan for driving out anti-Semitism and told us that rooting out anti-Semitism had been its, quote, number one priority since Sir Keir Starmer became leader. Labor Against Anti-Semitism confirmed that Ewan Phillips had used the name David Gordstein, but had never actually claimed to be Jewish when doing so. Jonathan Hoffman and Richard Millett both denied having historic links with the EDL. Millett also told us that he had barred an EDL member from commenting on his blog, quote, quite early on. This episode was produced by me, Kevin Hurton, and Richard Sanders, with help from Lydia Morish. Peter Charlie is the executive producer. Craig Pennington is our sound designer. Clean Cuts does the final sound mix. Ney Alvarez is the head of audio. And Phil Reese is Al Jazeera's director of investigative journalism. We'll see you next time.